Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Oteil Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Faux, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Hey, this is Brendan from Umphreys McGee. This podcast is part of the Osiris Podcast family. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts connecting music fans with conversation, commentary, and of course, lots of music. Osiris works in partnership with Relics Magazine. Osiris. Hey everybody, it's RJ from the Helping Friendly Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This is part one of episode 135. This two-part episode is going to be an interview with Stephen Hyden, who comes out with a new book on May 8th called Twilight of the Gods. It's about classic rock. We think a lot of our fans and, and listeners will relate to Stephen's experience kind of discovering classic rock. And I'll read a little bit from a review here by Lizzie Goodman, who wrote the rock book uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom. In this poignant tribute to the experience of being rescued by rock and roll, Haydn manages to both celebrate and mourn the inherently ephemeral magic of his heroes, the original class of rock and roll stars. His impassioned but wry prose does his saviors justice. It's a really good read. Um, we had a lot of fun reading it and, t- and talking about it, so we hope you enjoyed this part one of the interview with Stephen. Before we get into it, we want to just say that, again, HFPod's part of the Osiris Network. A lot of you have heard about Osiris by now, but we're creating a community of podcasts and events that are connecting people like you with all kinds of experiences and content that we think you'll love. So we'll be doing a lot more live events. We just did one in Atlanta at the Sweetwater 420 Fest last weekend, which was really fun, and we'll be doing a lot more. So um, sign up for the newsletter at osirispod.com to stay in the loop. One other thing we wanted to mention is that um, we really value your support of HFPod and, and your opinions as well. We've never done a, a listener survey before, so uh, we're gonna do we're gonna do one now. And um, 
we're, we want to learn a little bit more about you. We want to learn about your podcast and music listening preferences, about other podcasts you listen to, what your interests are, and what you think we can do better as a podcast. As we grow, if we start to get sponsors on the show, we want to make sure that those sponsors are aligned with your interests. We don't want to be talking about anything that our listeners aren't interested in. So the more we know about you, the better it is for us. And um, you can win a $100 Amazon gift card or a, a signed copy of Rift signed by Tom Marshall. So if you can take five or ten minutes, it would really help us out, fill out the survey. Um, we'll never share your information with anyone, obviously, so check that out. Um, another episode we want to tell you about from the Osiris Network is The Road to Now, which is hosted by Bob Crawford of the Avid Brothers. They're going to be talking about Woody Guthrie next week. And um, stay tuned to the end of this episode so you can hear a little bit more from Bob Crawford about that episode. But we encourage you to check out Road to Now if you're not already subscribing. And then lastly, if you can, if you haven't yet, uh, review us on Apple Podcasts. It just takes a second. It's helpful to us, um, and we appreciate the support. So let's get on to the uh, interview with Stephen Hyden, part one, and we'll bring you part two again a little bit later. Enjoy. All right, we're here with Stephen Hyden. Um, Stephen has has joined us once once before, as we mentioned. Um, Stephen, thanks for coming back, and um, you just wrapped up the the book, um, which we're going to talk about. And how does it feel to have it done and kind of uh, behind you to some extent at this point? Uh, yeah, it's exciting. Uh, you know, the best part of writing a book is having written a book. You know, like when you when you can hold it in your hands and you can talk to people about it, and and. You know, it's always a very, I always feel very grateful that people are interested when I've written a book and want to talk about it and everything. That that always feels like a real privilege, you know, to to have that. So this is definitely the best part of it. You know, uh, it makes all those hours that you spend by yourself in a room staring at a computer screen. You know, this is like the less lonely part of the process for sure. Well, we're going to get into the book and, and, you know, of course, talk about the the chapter on fish and and a little bit more about fish. But um, I just want to start with a question about about your experience writing it, because I I didn't know going in to reading it that it was going to be as much a coming of age story as it is a a classic rock history. Did did you did you know that going into it? Was that something that that you intended? Because it's almost like a personal narrative mixed with mixed with some classic rock. I'm just curious if that was your intention or if that evolved along the way. Yeah, I mean, you know, the kind of writing I do tends to mix journalism with criticism with a little bit of personal stuff and um it's funny because whenever you write in first person um there are people that really respond to that because it's like it's a way to disarm people i think it feels like you're talking directly to them but then there's also people that that hate it you know like and this is just going by like Goodreads reviews of like my first book, you know, like where people are like, uh, you know, you, you can just tell that like some people just want a more straightforward, um, sort of historical telling of whatever it is you're talking about. But you know, like with Twilight of the Gods, I felt like when I, whenever I was writing about myself, I felt like, um, the things I was writing about weren't just true for me. Like I had a feeling that these experiences were universal in some way that people would be able to relate to what I was going through. So, you know, it's writing about me, but I felt like, well, I'm sort of like a typical character in this book. So hopefully when people read it, they'll be able to relate to it. And some of the early responses I've gotten from people that that's proven to be the case. Yeah. I, um, I, I think I tweeted it today. In fact, I know I did that. Uh, it, it felt like you had crawled up in my head and dredged out some of my own experiences. Um, I think I'm just a couple of years older than you perhaps. And, uh, you know, but my journey was very similar and listening to classic rock radio and, uh, exploring these bands and starting with dark side and getting into Zeppelin and all these other things. It's kind of obvious, um, monolithic you know albums and then kind of getting into the ephemeral and more okay less important stuff as you go um it was it was very familiar well and i just want to tell you that 
you, bu- you, you busted me. I did crawl inside of your head. And <laughs> I, I totally, I totally stole from you for, for the book. So, so sorry about that, but it, it, it paid off. Thank you for letting me be in your head. Seems to have worked out. Well, it's, it's funny because it reminds me of there's that line that Trey has in Bittersweet Motel where he's talking about like, you know, the, the, the suburban kid, you know, going to the mall and buying records is like is is like a, a, a type of person here now in the rock world. Right. And like he was saying it more from an artist perspective, but from us, the listeners we're now, you know, like second generation rock fans. Um, so I think, you know, those of us who grew up on, you know, classic rock radio, I mean, it's um, it's amazing that we all did have these kind of shared uh, experiences, regardless of where we uh, we came from geographically. Yeah, and I think that is it's a more common experience than what you read in a lot of books where um, it's usually someone talking about how they were at the ground level of some historic musical scene, like whether they were at CBGB's in 1975 and saw you know, the Ramones for the first time, or they were in Seattle in the late eighties and they bought like the first sub pop singles, you know, it's always these like people that had this, this very exclusive, um, experience. And, and of course that's really fun to, to read about stuff, but I know whenever I read stuff like that, um, it's hard for me to relate to because I grew up in the Midwest where nothing exciting ever happened in my town. You know, there was, there was no opportunity for me to be at the ground level of anything. It was always just sort of plugging into these things that already existed. Um, and yet I had my own sort of mythical experiences with that. Like, you know, like you said, dark side of the moon, it's sort of an obvious album to be into when you're 13, 14 years old, you know, like you're not going to win any, win any coolness points if you're into Pink Floyd at that age. But, you know, getting into that band was, was mind blowing to me. Uh, you know, it just was like, I'd never heard anything like that at the time. And, um, you know, I, th- I, I think that's a, that's obviously an experience that millions of people have had, you know, uh, having their minds blown by these sort of touched uh, these touchstone albums, you know, that, you know, they're not obvious to you the first time that you hear them, you know, they are, they do kind of feel like someone handed you like a stone tablet from up on high that had like these truths etched into them. Um, yeah, that's how it felt for me anyway, getting into those records. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it it definitely reminded me of my discovery of a lot of classic rock, too. Um, Your memory on this stuff is is crazy to me because you you wrote about a lot of songs that I haven't thought about since I heard them on whatever my radio station was. Um, Like early in the book, I think page 15 or so, you talk about W.I.X.X. playing Every Rose Has Its Thorn and Love Song. And there's probably 20 other songs mentioned in that two paragraphs. I'm curious, um, was that more like did you go back and, and look at songs that came out in each year to jog your memory or, or was a lot of that just like your experience and revisiting it like in terms of research? Well, you know, it's funny because I think I was definitely one of those kids where like I was only ever going to be a rock critic when I grew up. Like if I hadn't actually been able to make a living at this, yeah, I would have been like a homeless rock critic or, or <laughs> unemployed rock critic. You know, I just had my brain programmed in a certain way to retain worthless information to sort of look at music in a very analytical way. Like when I was a kid, I, I thought about how the different radio stations were programmed and how they were different. Like how the classic rock station was different from the oldie station, you know, like, which is something I write about in the book. That was like one of the things that always intrigued me as a kid that like, Chuck Berry was oldies. He wasn't classic rock, even though you think, well, if you, you know, what's more classic as rock music than, than Chuck Berry or Buddy Holly, you know, but like in the sort of stratification of radio, you know, if you came out in the fifties to early sixties, you were sort of shuttled off into the oldies category. Classic rock was like sort of starting in the late sixties going into, you know, maybe the late seventies, early eighties. Um, 
you know, and that's what it was like when I was a kid. And of course, that's changed over the years. Now you listen to classic rock and you will hear Pearl Jam next to Led Zeppelin, next to The Who, next to Smashing Pumpkins. And there's sort of an argument about that, about like, you know, is Pearl Jam really classic rock? And, you know, that's sort of another question in these weird sort of categorizations that happen in radio but um, anyway just to get, to get back to your question I think I, I just always um, you know I, this stuff always stuck in my head you know because I think I was a music critic already at that age so in a way I was doing research for the book in 1990 you know without really knowing it right. you know I was like I know it doesn't matter really in the long run that like Tesla's love song is so popular on the local top 40 station. But like you should remember this because in like 28 years, this will come in handy, you know, when you write something, <laughs> you know, it's like I just had a feeling that that would be important for some well, reason. Some of that might be that the playlists were so redundant at times that you know in in a three-month period you're hearing the same stuff a lot and um also i have to say when you're rattling off bands that you would hear on the classic rock station next to pearl jam nowadays you somehow didn't say bob seger and i can't turn on classic rock station without hearing bob seger anymore it didn't used to be quite so seger heavy but it really seems to he's 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 really owning that category these days Good for Bob. Yeah, good for Bob. I don't know if it's good for everybody else. Yeah, oh man, it's... I'll defend Seeger. I'm I'm pro Seeger. There's some Seeger in my book. There could have been more Seeger. I'm Seeger weary. Oh well, yeah, I could see that. I mean, he's a victim of like the same three or four songs being played. You know, it's turn the page, night moves, Main Street, and like old time rock and roll or whatever it is. that's true I, I, it's funny I would sometimes listen to like the local I sometimes listen to the local oldies station which is now like it's funny how they define oldies now because it's like 70s and 80s um, <laughs> and and they'll play old time rock and roll the Bob Seger song but then they'll play like Whitney Houston songs it's like really bizarre it's sort of like an amalgam of like classic rock and like what they used to call like cool FM which would be like, oh, yeah. like kind of soft rock like soft pop hits that you like the music you'd hear at the dentist's office type type stuff um and I don't even know if that format like like the cool that's where you'd hear like Bruce Hornsby and Sting and stuff like that like back in the you know, when I was younger, um, you know, if they played like Ramblin' Gamblin' Man or something by Bob Seger, you know, like like the early kind of more garage rocky Bob Seger. I don't know. <laughs> I think I think there would be a little bit he'd be a little bit easier to take maybe for people, but I'd probably be more into it. He's, he does suffer from the overplay. It's like uh, Bob Boylan says he can't listen to Fleetwood Mac rumors. He can't hear it without wanting to kill something just because of. In the right time and place, it was played so many times that he he just he can't like it. Oh man, he's he's got to get over that. One, man. <laughs> I, I agree. I I love your uh, I love your take on that record in the book too. Yeah, I mean I've heard that record a million times and I'm I'm still not sick of it. I, I don't know. Like that, I think that record is so well put together, and there's so much um, drama on that record. Like I, I don't know, but I guess if I was Maybe if I had been an adult in 1977, like when that album was first he was out, I would hate it. You know, I don't know. He was working in a record store at the time, I think. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other albums from my own life that I, I, I can't listen to anymore. But uh, Rumors is not one of them. I, I don't really get sick of that record. So, so um, in terms, speaking of records and the uh, the art of the album, uh, on was it RJ noted the page on fifty two? You talk about it being kind of a lost art. Um, now there are some groups I think that are still carrying it forward. Uh, His Golden Messenger put out a pretty amazing record this last year, and lots. There are several groups doing it. Do you think there's a resurgence, or are there just a cluster of torchbearers out there or is it really just dying 
I mean, I think there's a. I mean, what I write about in the book is that I think that the reason why albums still exist is because artists want to make them. That if it were purely up to the marketplace, that they wouldn't really need to exist because it seems like the majority of people don't necessarily consume music like that, you know, and, and certainly streaming platforms don't encourage you to listen to music like that. Like when you search for songs on Spotify, like they'll put playlists above albums, like albums get kind of pushed down. They're, they're mm-hmm. kind of hard to find sometimes. Yeah. Um, but obviously there's lots of people that still make albums and, and do it really well. And, and, and I care about albums still, and I'm sure all your listeners do. I mean, I, I think people that are, uh, um, you know, the people who buy vinyl, the people who are into sort of rock music or, or music that derives from sort of the lineage of classic rock, which I would imagine probably includes most of your audience. Like if you like fish, you, that's probably what you're into. Um, you know, there's lots of examples of, of bands that make albums as albums. Um, but looking at it from like a pop music perspective, I mean, even from a pop music perspective, there's, you know, like Beyonce makes albums, you know, uh, um, you know, Taylor Swift makes albums and, and they care about the album experience. But, you know, it just seems like, um, you know, music was influenced, like the, the kind of music that was made was 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 influenced by the, the vinyl format. You know, people made music to fit on like a side one and a side two. And they and they and they thought about how albums were constructed because of the format. And certainly the CD had a similar thing. CD, you know, the CD format made albums much longer, you know, like in yeah. the nineties, they got really big and bloated. And I think streaming as a format for listening to music, it has its own influence. Streaming has also made albums bloated too, because if you have more tracks on your album, uh, you, you'll have more streams, which will increase, which will increase your sales figures. So that's why, like Drake, puts out like twenty track albums now um, because it inflates his stats. Um, but I think generally, you know, it, that almost feels like something different. It seems like I, I wonder, looking forward, if albums will resemble playlists more than sort of a conventional album, like what we think of as like a twelve track. 50, like 48 minute record um, if, if that's still going to be the standard or if that will change you know but uh, you know that'll be, that'll be interesting to see but yeah I mean I think but yeah I mean I, I don't think the album is dying or anything I, I think that like, I, I interview artists all the time and and you know they care about making records they want to make records but like a lot of them also concede that people won't necessarily listen to them in the way that maybe they were conceived, you know, but they know that like, if you sequence a record, people won't necessarily listen to it in that order or, you know, cause they don't have to, you know, and, yeah. and they shouldn't have to, you know, you, you can, you can listen to music any way you want. Um, but you know, it, the format itself, it doesn't necessarily encourage people to listen to an album in order, you know, or to, or to even just listen to an album as opposed to a playlist that just has like the best tracks off of like, you know, a hundred albums. Yeah. It seems like there's good alignment between the artists that are, you know, away from the album format and, and more into streaming and things like that. Um, and their their fans and the way that they would consume music being the type of people that would be more into, you know, just let an algorithm pick it for me um, versus, you know, the other side of fence, people like all of us who listen to more album oriented artists who are making albums still and are and are, you know, still at this point now, again, tailoring them towards vinyl, cutting, cutting down the length um, and making 45 minute records again that are, you know, tightly sequenced. Um, so it seems like, you know, you can have it the way way that you want it both as an artist and as a uh, as a listener these days yeah i mean the thing i've realized is that like nothing is going to die you know no kind of music no trend i don't think anything will ever die anymore because it doesn't have to die you know it's not like when i was a kid and the media more tightly controlled how 
music was consumed. So like if you were, say, a Poison fan in 1993 and you wanted to see the video for the new Poison song, like you couldn't see it because MTV wasn't going to play it anymore. And now it's like if you love Poison or whoever, you can go on YouTube and you can see the video as many times as you want. And it's made it possible now for like unfashionable bands, you know, for lack of a better term, or unfashionable music to, to continue on because, you know, like like metal music, you know, that music is never sort of cool as far as the mainstream is concerned, but like that has the most loyal fan base ever. Like those fans will never give up on metal and they'll support their favorite bands forever. I mean, the jam band community is like that. You know, like, the, I mean, the jam band, you know, the, I mean, those bands have never really gotten any kind of mainstream press. I mean, even Fish at their peak in the 90s, um, it took a long time. I think Rolling Stone did their first big Fish story in 96, um, like Billy Breed's era. And I think that was the same year that they did their first big sort of festival. Was that uh, Clifford Ball in 96? Um, Which, you know, it's a huge event drawn about 70 60, 70,000 people. Um, you know, but it took a long time for even like the biggest band of that scene to get noticed, um, which at the time was probably frustrating for fans of that band. But in the long run, it was better for them because if you don't have to rely on the media uh, to talk about you, uh, you're always better off. There's so many like indie rock bands, even now that um rely way too much on the media you know and like they sort of they have a constructed sort of image of like how popular they are based on like the people that write about them and then they can't sell tickets and uh in the long run they end up just fading away and there are certain bands i could mention who that's true of but i won't it's not nice it's not nice to do but you know i mean there's bands that have gotten like two or three you know like if you go on pitchfork if you use that as as a uh sort of benchmark of that like they've gotten you know you you get best new music you know maybe on a couple records and they're still not that popular and then there's other bands that have never even gotten written about that can like headline theaters um in any major city in the country so you know it just shows how much of that is how much uh, you know record reviews are worth sometimes mm. you know yeah so l- let's get into uh, to talking about fish um, since this is a fish podcast and we know that you're a fish fan um, although I was a I just want to say I was a poison fan who wanted to see the newest video in 1993 I just wanted to I didn't want to leave that hanging in case it was there was a question because that was and it would have been stand. Off the album Native Tongue. Wow. Which which I know because I got that album um, from Columbia House because I didn't send in, uh, you know, (laughs) I I didn't make the choice. You know, like they send you the album automatically. Right. You don't make a choice or something. I got got Native Tongue in the mail um, for free. I think it was like 94. That was the beginning of the end. And uh, CC DeVille wasn't in the band anymore. Yeah, that was it. That was it. Um, can I just say too, like, um, there's a fish chapter in my book and which we'll probably talk about, but I just want to say that like my editor did not want that chapter to be in the book (laughs) for that to be in when I turned in the book and he did his first pass, he, uh, he cut that chapter out completely. And I was like, I got to put that back in. It's an important chapter in the book. And he was unconvinced. That chapter was actually originally twice as long as it is. Um, So I cut, and I think it's better now, but maybe I'll like, like I'll, I'll release the unedited version of that chapter for the fish fans out there. Cause I, cause I went to a bunch of shows in 2016 and I wrote about going to shows like, wow! Well, I was like, like I went to the Wrigley Field show, uh, the, the 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 second night, like the like the really good night, and like you know there were like these college kids doing cocaine in front of me, and I was writing about that and all this all this other stuff, and I cut all that stuff out. 
because my editor hated that stuff. And I was like, yeah, it's probably too much. Um, but I just want to say that I fought for fish <laughs> to get them in the book. Because my well, editor did not want them in the book. And I was like, no, this is important. And I think I won him over. And nice. I, I love that chapter. It's like one of my favorite chapters. In the book. Well, I think it works beautifully. And I want to see the long version of it. Uh, I would like to see yeah. the commitment you put into writing about seeing Bruce Springsteen, which makes me want to see Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I would like to see that applied to fish. Uh, so I would like to read that. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there was a, the, the fish chapter was by far the longest chapter in the book. It was probably about 8,000 words. I, was it really? Yeah, I think the chapter that's in there is like around 4,000 or, or, or 4,500. But like, yeah, I, I cut out the beginning and the end of that chapter and kept the middle. Like that was basically it. Like what I did, like they're pretty clean cuts. Um, but, uh, cause I was like, yeah, my editor was, he hated that chapter. I, I can't or exaggerate that enough. He hated that chapter. And he's like, I don't know why this is in there. You got to cut this out. This is, this is a perfect example of the way people who aren't fish fans treat exactly. fish and fish fans. Yeah. It's- what is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. That's exactly what you talk about yeah. in the book. <laughs> Why do you hate it, bro? Why do you hate it? Well, and in, in, in fairness to him, um, I, you know, it was too long, I think. I, I don't think everything in that chapter worked. I think what happened was is that I went to go see them a bunch. And, like, I followed them. I went to, like, three or four shows in a row. And it's the first time I ever done that with Fish. And I think I just, like... It's kind of like 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 someone who makes a movie, and they shoot all of these like scenes with like lots of like long improvisations, and they just like fall in love with all these scenes that don't really work and don't further the plot. But they're just like I can't cut any of this out because I love it so much. And and then you show it to someone else, and they're like, "Are you fucking insane? Like why why are you writing about this guy that you met in a parking lot?" <laughs> you know, there's nothing to do with what your book is really about. So, and he's like, "Okay, you're probably right." So like I I, I I focused it more so it kind of fit with the thesis of the overall book a little bit better, and I think it turned out. Uh, I think it was. I think the, what's in there is much better than what I originally turned in. Mm. Um, but I was like, when I go on, the, like, you know. The fish podcast. I got. I, I'm going to. I just have to tell them that this chapter almost got <laughs> cut, and I kept it in. So it's, so people understand that I went the extra mile uh, to get fish in the book. Wow. So I, I think the, Thank you. the last time that you were on our show, uh, which was uh, 2015, you had only seen one fish show at that point. You mentioned you've, you've seen some more shows now. How yeah. how has your opinion um, shifted or matured now that you've gotten to experience it live a little bit more? And I'm sure that the three years has probably given you an opportunity to dig into more of the, the back uh, catalog of live shows as well. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember like what I said back in '15. I mean, I'm definitely more of a fan. I, I, I think I'm, I'm better versed in in the band and everything. But you know, I, one thing I really like about Fish, and you know, I write about this in the book, is that like when I got into Fish, when I really kind of became a fan of them, it what I loved about it is that it reminded me of getting into a lot of the classic rock bands that I loved when I was a teenager. Um, because I didn't, because it was such a vast mythology with fish, and there's so much music to discover, and that like you can be a fan of like 1993 fish, and that's not the same as 1997 fish or you know 2013 fish. It's almost like every year, not that it's a different band, but it's certainly a different feel, different era, very distinct type thing, and. I loved being ignorant. I, I loved my ignorance of it. I loved that, like, I did not have fully formed opinions on everything. And it kind of brought me back to, like, I guess the innocence of being a kid and, like, 
just enjoying Pink Floyd on a totally earnest level with no irony, no apologies, like no baggage, or like just loving Led Zeppelin for so much, like on a totally innocent, like you know, fresh as a as a newborn babe type type <laughs> way. And um, with Fish, I you know, it's the same thing. Like when you know, like I'll dabble like uh, like in Fish Twitter, like when Fish is on tour. And, uh, you know, I just hang back and, and listen. I never, like, push my opinions on anybody because I totally feel like I'm not worthy to do that. Like, I'm totally deferential to experts. I mean, one thing I have found is that, like, I've, I've watched live streams of shows, like, with really big super fans. And you can sometimes hang out with super fans who love fish so much that they actually hate fish. You oh, know? Yeah. Where, you know, it's like anything they do is like, oh, okay. yeah. oh, great. Okay, they did this jam, but, like, then they went into this. Why'd they play, you know, backward down the number line? You know, and then they're, then they're like, angry. <laughs> and they're just complaining about everything during the show. And I'm always, and I'm almost like, okay, I can't watch this with you. Because I just want to, because I'm sort of at the point still, like, we're all watch fish shows and I'll just be like, Oh, like, you know, they they played Karini. Uh, that sounded so so great. I like, you know, it's like I'm not that critical of it. Like, I just enjoy the experience. Like, I'm not discerning enough yet. Like, I don't know enough to be like sort of disappointed by them. <laughs> Which, and I and I'm like, I kind of want to retain that, you know, like, you know what I mean? That innocence uh, where I can just enjoy. I mean, I think I know enough now like where i can spot like a an average show you know like or like sort of like or like a or a, a set list that maybe isn't flowing well or where they don't seem maybe the the jam seem a little road or something um but uh i don't know i enjoy the ritual of following them so much that even if a show isn't totally great i i just like it's sort of like being a baseball fan and, and you're just glad to be at the ballpark. Right. You like the smell of the grass. You like, you know, eating peanuts. You like getting a beer in the third inning, you know, and even if the team plays like shit, it's like you're still outside and you're enjoying the sunshine. And that's how I am with fish still. So yeah. hopefully I can aim that. I won't become so knowledgeable that I start to hate them. Because I well, definitely feel like that's true. At least of some fish fans that I've seen online or that i've met in person oh uh, we don't yeah, know fish we fans on the internet yeah. are the worst <laughs> i feel like i want to be like like an adult looking at a kid like don't ever grow up stay the age you are right now like this <laughs> it's true it's true you know like yeah i mean it, there's so many things that i'm cynical about i feel like or that i'm more that i'll roll my eyes at like in other musical areas um you know certain kind of lyrics or certain kind of bands you know you you feel like oh i've i've seen that so many times that it becomes a cliche and it becomes easy to make fun of um but there was a time like where they weren't cliches where i heard it for the first time and i thought it was awesome you know Mm -hmm. and uh um you know, it's it's good to get smarter and more discerning and to have better taste. These are all good things in the long run, I guess. But there is a certain joy, I think, to innocence, you know, and I, and I still have that with fish. And uh, I mean, I re- you know, like I make a joke about this in the book, but in a way it's true. I mean, I, I got into fish like in my mid 30s. And I think in retrospect, I feel like there's something tied in with like approaching middle age, you know, like instead of buying a sports car, I got into fish. Like this was something that I could get into (laughs) that was new and kind of made me feel younger in a a way, you know, it might not be cheaper, though. Ultimately. I was going to say the same thing. Be careful. Yeah. 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 Talk, talk to any of our wives and they'll dispute the, uh, the, the price tag. Well, I haven't like done like a, like a, like a real trip yet. Like I, I, you know, I, I would love to see them at Madison square garden. I've never been to Madison square garden and that would be amazing to see any band there, but it'd be pretty cool to go to a fish show. I thought about going to, um, that thing they're doing in August. Is it Magna ball? Or, what Cur- is that? Curve curveball. Curve ball. 
Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like they were charging like five hundred bucks for a tent or something. It was, it was like super expensive. It seemed like to do. I don't know if any of you guys you, are doing that. You can bring your own tent. Oh, um, can you? Okay. Yeah. I don't have it. Okay. It just but, seemed like prohibitively expensive because it's like in upstate New York. Yeah. Yeah. It would, it's kind of hard to get up there. Um, maybe not for you guys as much because you're already on the East Coast. But like for someone like me, you got to fly in and then you got to rent a car and you got to go up there and then you got to, you know, get a hotel and all that stuff. But at any rate, I haven't had any trips like that yet, like where I've had to fly somewhere, but, you know, I'd like to well, do that at some point. I highly recommend, if you haven't done any of this stuff yet, go to um, go to MSG, go to Vegas, somewhere where they have hotels and you can spend somewhere within your comfort level, um, either a whole lot or not as much, and, um, you know... You don't have to pack a tent and all that stuff when you're flying. So it's, it's a good way to do it. Or go to Hampton if they come to Hampton. I mean, no, don't go to Hampton. It's terrible. It's totally overrated. <laughs> uh, too late, man. Too late. Uh, um, Matt's going to cut that part out. And I need to uh, – none of my friends like fish either. That's the other thing that is hard for uh, something like that. I have to like coordinate with people I meet online or something because – it's still one of those things like where I talk to like my music friends that go to shows, they do not understand the, the fish, uh, fandom, you know, like I, I play that for them in the car and they're not into it at all, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll make some converts at some point. Yeah. All my guided by voices, loving friends. Just let us know. We'll, we'll take care of you. See, I'm on this podcast just to meet other fish fans. This is sort of like my, my singles dating site, except for, <laughs> for fish fans. So, you know, hopefully. Uh, so, yeah. So come uh, go to shows with me, fish fans. Hit me up. <laughs> Talk up, man. Oh, man. Yeah. You're going to regret yeah, that. Yeah, you might, you might regret <laughs> that. <laughs> Imagine you cut that out. But you can't bitch the whole time. That's my only thing. Yeah. Don't. Goodbye, I, I hate that. It's like just – yeah, because I've definitely gone to shows with people, too, that like – like you know, like you you get excited during like waiting in the velvet sea in the second set, and then and they're, like, they're rolling their eyes at you like, oh, this song's too slow. Why don't they play something more obscure here? And I'm like, motherfucker, I'm enjoying waiting in the velvet sea. Can I swear <laughs> on your podcast? Can I swear on your podcast? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. It's like don't fucking ruin my vibe here. I'm yeah. enjoying Trey. Ripping it up at the end of the song. Don't ruin it with your cynical bullshit here. That's how I feel. Me too. I don't care if you've seen 50 other shows where they did this. I haven't seen it. I'm enjoying it. So shut up. So that's my thing. Yeah. So not not to uh, to like spoiler alert this or anything with your fish chapter, but there was a, a quote towards the end of it that I wanted to ask you about. Um, you say um, that's the real reason why music critics and cool kids hate fish so much. They operate as if punk never happened. What what did you mean by that? Well, I think when you read a lot of music criticism, it comes from a I mean there's a lot of biases I think that are inherent to music criticism but like one of the overriding biases is that punk is good that like and what punk represents is good meaning that like music should um, be really simple uh, you know all songs should be three minutes long it should be raw um, you know you should, I, I, there should be no jamming you know, it, it 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 should have the aesthetics of like what we would associate with punk, um, and certainly with people that write about indie rock, that that that's an overriding thing. Um, so I think with um, a band like Fish, like one of the reasons why I think they've suffered over the years is because there's very little of that in their music, and a lot of what they're doing is music that either predates punk or was happening outside of punk, you know. So like, you know, and and certainly there are sort of like post-punk stuff in what in what Fish is doing, like certainly like the Talking Heads influence, um, but the Talking Heads are not like. Um, I mean, the Talking Heads are certainly like a, like a critically adored band, um, but you know, the Talking Heads were much more sort of musically expansive than like 
the typical punk band or the typical sort of indie rock band. Like if it, like if we're going to look at say the Ramones as being like a a paragon of sort of like critical uh, uh, like a critical ideal or like pavement. You know, being another one. Um, both bands that I love, by the way, love both those bands. But like, and you know, certainly Fish has covered Pavement, so like Trey loves Pavement too. Um, but just the wealth of influences that Fish is drawing from, and 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 the classic rock influences that they have, uh, which you know, one of the things I love about Fish is that they draw on a lot of classic rock that, like, it's not the cool classic rock. It's not, like, the, the classic rock that's acceptable for people to like. Like, they'll, you know, you could tell that they love the first Boston record. You know, right. they, they, cover, they cover the James Gang. You know, they're covering, like, ACDC. Um, and just... The music that they're playing, I mean, it has sort of obvious overtones of like the prog rock uh, of the 70s. You know, the music that punk supposedly came along to destroy, you know, um, you know, like the, you know, whenever you watch documentaries about punk music, they always have that same talking point where they'll show like, um, Emerson, Lake and Palmer playing like a 17-minute jam. And then you'll hear the record scratch, and they'll go, this was bullshit. And then this was the real music that came along. And <laughs> destroyed this. You know, that's a... T- I mean, we've all seen that documentary a hundred million times. Um, and what Fish is saying is, we actually like Emerson, Lake and Palmer. We like that kind of noodly stuff. And we're not against the punk stuff either, but, you know, we don't feel like this other stuff had to be destroyed. I mean, it's just music, you know, and, and we can do something with that too. And, um, so I think from a critical perspective, like a lot of the stuff that they were influenced by and that they celebrate is just stuff that like hasn't been fashionable, like for a really long time. And that no sort of self-respecting band that wants to curry political favor, like whatever, ever, ever reference. Um, so yes, yeah, so like when I wrote that, I mean that's what I was, what I was talking about. That like, if you were to make a list of all the bands that critics hate, I think that would be a very similar list to the kinds of bands that that Fish was drawing from. And Fish and Fish would be on the list too. And Fish would be yeah, on the list on the too. List. Yeah. Although it's funny because I feel like um, there's been a change in the last maybe three or four years where. Um, you're seeing more people talk about fish and and that might be because the grateful dead has now become a band that I think is more acceptable for like people in the indie world to talk about and, and to say that they like, yeah, you know, we've seen pitchfork cover grateful dead and, um, over the years, uh, the day of the dead comp- compilation that came out a couple of years ago as well. Um, and yeah, it does definitely, they turned on grateful dead, so it does seem to be that they're slightly turning on fish. Is it just because, you know, you and Rob Mitchum are rising to greater prominence and pushing everybody else into, you know, recognizing their genius or it's all me. It's, it's just me. Okay. Forget Rob. No, it's uh, no. I mean, I, I think it's the bands. I think you see more bands talking about it. You know, you, you mentioned the day of the dead compilation, which is spearheaded by the national, the national guys loved fish too. I mean, like the Desner brothers were going to fish concerts in the nineties and they've been more open about that. I think they were involved. They played on Trey Anastasio's, one of his solo records. I forget which one the national was involved in that. And, uh, someone told me that like at a recent war on drugs concert that Adam was making fish references from the stage. He did. Yeah. He referenced game henge. He was like, okay. like introducing a song. He was like, okay, now we're going to play Game Henge, um, which seems like completely out of the blue. Like, I, I, I don't know that there's ever been any sort of tie of those guys to, to fish before. And in, in contrast to every other moment of the war on drugs, all the dudes stared straight ahead and didn't move. Oh, <laughs> uh, so you guys anti-war on drugs? No, 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 no. no, no. Exact them. opposite. We're big fans. Big fans. And I just went to a show recently and I was like... Wow, there, it's like it's literally like the person who moves the least is like 
is the coolest music fan you know it's like it just it's it's often treated at those shows that i see at least that it's like dancing and move oh yeah, that's exactly that's just because you didn't that's just because you didn't go to see yola tango with me a couple weeks ago you would <laughs> your your perspective would be completely different man i that's had fair. i had to whisper to a bartender when i was ordering a beer while they were playing <laughs> it's a different atmosphere um, I mean, with the war on drugs, I don't think it's, you know, I don't know if Adam has ever talked about fish in an interview or anything. I, I mean, I want to talk to him now about that. I, I, it, I would not be surprised if he was into that, just knowing the other kinds of music that he's into and, uh, and, and Trey just being like a great guitar player and Adam being into guitar players it totally makes sense. And I, I don't know. It, it, I talk to musicians who bring up fish fairly often, who either le- who either loved fish when they were younger, and then they, they felt like, well, I moved on from that, and I'm not into it anymore. But then they're sort of getting back into it. Like, there's a feeling of like, well, why did I abandon that? You know, I didn't have to abandon that. It was almost like they felt like they had to. You know, like if they, if you're going to play this kind of music, you can't be into this anymore. And yeah, you know, I think maybe that's changing um, a bit. And you know, the other thing about fish, and you know, and I write about this in my book, is that like for the longest time, like I didn't like fish. I didn't like fish. And then I realized one day that like I knew nothing about fish. You know, my dislike of them was based purely on what I was told about them or like what their media image was or like all the stereotypes that you hear like oh they just play songs forever and they're ripping off the grateful dead they're just like a bunch of hippies you know all the stereotypes that people have about them that know nothing about them and i was like well why do i dislike this band if i don't know anything about them and all of a sudden i became really curious to check them out and then that was sort of the beginning of becoming a fan and i realized like oh wait this band has kind of everything that i like they're maybe my favorite band like <laughs> you know it's sort of like the it's like that romantic comedy where you the two people meet at the beginning and they're enemies and then they realize oh wait we love each other you know <laughs> it's like uh, the fish was like my meg ryan you know and i was timeless. <laughs> you know it's like wait why, why do I hate you? I love you. You're my you're my dream woman. You know, so that was definitely the, my trajectory with Fish. It is a, a touchstone for a lot of bands, and it's become similarly to Grateful Dead a bit of a rite of passage. Particularly now that they're back again, people can you know indulge the youthful Fish interest, and I can see some musicians leaving fish behind simply because it's a commitment. I mean, being a fish fan can take a lot of time. You could take a lot of your time. If you pay attention to the band, they go on tour. Well, you know, sometimes you have to step away from those kinds of distractions to focus on your own thing. But I've, I know MGMT, um, when back, back when their first record was out, they talked about being fish fans. Um, I know I sat down with the guys from Megaphone one time before a show, and they all admitted they were into fish. And um, and I think that expands over to um, to uh, Justin Vernon, who you know they all went to school with and were in a band with, and and uh, and he's kind of big in music now too. Um, <laughs> so it, it's out there. It's out there. I was just gonna say. I mean, it could also be that. You know, fish went away for a while. There was a long hiatus, and before they went on hiatus, they weren't necessarily at their best. You know, I guess if you want to talk about that '02 to '04 era, you know, like not really being great, uh, they kind of went into a cloud for a while, um, and now they've come back, and there's a real sense of steadiness with them. And I think you know when they did the Baker's Dozen. Um, you know, the way that that was discussed, I think was really interesting. I mean, they got, I feel like that's the most sort of mainstream coverage that fish has probably gotten. Mm-hmm. And like maybe since the nineties, you know, where there was a real sense of like, uh, respect for what they had done at there, you know, even if you're not a fan, the idea of this band played all of these sold out shows and did different set lists every night it's a pretty impressive feat um 
So I, I don't know if you saw that video of Metallica talking about that, I which I thought was kind of funny. I mean, you know, it's, I think a lot of people were like that. It's like, wow, I don't know anything about fish, but holy shit. Like, how, how did they do that? You know, that's a pretty amazing thing for a band to be able to do. The other thing that video of Metallica revealed is that they really don't know anything about fish. Yeah, they were, they were surprised and impressed by the accomplishment, but then they kind of went on to ex- express ignorance of really how fish does what they do and what they're doing when they're playing. So it was kind of a get both aspects right there. So, so on that same topic, um, just to ask a little follow up about that, um, I made a comment to somebody right after the Baker's Dozen and all that coverage that they were getting, which felt a very unprecedented uh, as far as Fish is concerned and some of the accolades, you know, not just attention and being written about, but but positive, uh, you know, reviews and whatnot, um, that that could potentially be one of the things that gets them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it's actually a feat in rock and roll. I mean, what do you think about that? Because that question comes up all the time of like, is Fish going to get in? When are they going to get in? Is Are they going to wind up being one of these bands like, you know, Yes or Genesis that like in like, you know, 60 years, we're all old and decrepit and we're like, why didn't, why isn't Fish in? And, you know, they sold so many tickets and stuff. And like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame just doesn't give a fuck about them. You know, so okay, so Fish has been eligible like since like fourteen or so, two thousand fourteen. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah I, I have no idea, man. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a fucking mystery to me. <laughs> I I cannot believe that Radiohead didn't make it on the first ballot. You know, no matter what you think about Radiohead, I think Radiohead is awesome. Some people don't like Radiohead, but in terms of a band that I would have predicted would have made the Hall of Fame on the first ballot, they're a band that. I sold a lot of records. They play big tours. They're very critically acclaimed. I mean, they kind of check all the boxes. I mean, the strike against Fish is that they've never had really any kind of mainstream, um, like major success. I mean, like they've they you know they've sold records. You know, Billy Breeze was, was a pretty big hit. I mean, they had some like I don't know if they ever had a platinum album. I, I maybe a live one was probably a platinum a live record. One, platinum, platinum, yeah. um, but you know, they've never had like any hit singles. You know, and like stuff like that matters for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They tend to reward commercial success. Um, so like their mainstream sort of profile is pretty low, um, which would be a negative against them. Um, the other negative against them is that their Hall of Fame is just fucking super stodgy. You know, yeah. like there are so many bands from the 80s that you would assume would be in that are not that, you know, Sonic Youth, The Cure, The Smiths, um, The Pixies, uh, The Replacements, Husker Du, you know, um, you know, like like a band like The Cure, for instance, who has sold millions of records, like, and they play arenas or they played arenas at their peak, you know, you would think they'd have enough commercial success. I think that artistically they deserve to be in. I think they put out a lot of great records. They've obviously influenced a lot of people. You know, they've, they have influenced the sound of rock music and certainly alternative music. Um, and I don't know if they've ever seriously been considered for the Hall of Fame. And it, it, there seems to be some sort of weird blind spot with like British bands of the 80s with mm-hmm. the Hall of Fame. And I don't know why that is. Um, certainly there's a big blind spot with, with metal bands. Uh, with with the Hall of Fame, like Iron Maiden isn't in. You think our, you know, Iron Maiden that they've influenced like every metal band probably like in their wake. They, you know, they didn't get in. Like Metallica got in, but Metallica sold like 20 million albums of like the Black Album. You know, like, that that's how right. popular you have to be as a metal band. So you know, Fish. I mean, I think they deserve to be in. I think if you look at what they've accomplished. Um, as a live band, certainly, I think the path that they've cut is so unique, even compared to the Grateful Dead, who had commercial success. You know, they had hit singles. Uh, you know, there is no equivalent to Touch of Grey and Fish's uh, back catalog. There's no, there's no equivalent to like Casey Jones or, or Truckin. You know, like that became right. FM. Uh, radio staples. I mean, Fish has nothing like that, really. Um, 
their legacy is almost completely due to playing live and the connection that they've created with fans and um, the and being able to do that, I think, deserves to be recognized. Um, but I don't know if I was a fish. You know, if you're a fish fan that cares about the Hall of Fame, I would say don't hold your breath. Yeah. I think it could be a while. I think it could be one of those things where, you know, there there are bands that got in because of like fan voting. Like that's how Rush got in. Um, that that might be how Fish gets in. Um, but there's so because there's just so many other bands. Uh, that haven't gotten in that I think are more obvious than fishes. I mean, again, like the Radiohead thing, I, I don't understand that at all. And like the, the class that went in this year, I think it's the cars, dire straits. Um, who are some of the other ones? Bon Jovi, yeah, you know, bon Jovi. I mean, you know, and I like some of those artists, you know, I, I like the cars. I, I like dire straits. Um, you know, Sister uh, Rosetta Sister Thorpe Rosetta got Hart. in, Moody which is Blues. which is odd. Moody, yeah, Moody Blues, yeah. Who's who's gonna fucking watch that show? Like when they broadcast it, <laughs> Who, who's gonna watch? Like what? Like who is the marquee artist? Dire Straits didn't even play. They didn't. Even sh- they didn't even show up. No, no one yeah, showed up. Didn't show I mean, up. and not that you should just pick bands that are gonna draw an audience, but um, I don't see the excitement. Like, where's the excitement? Like, like people were excited when Pearl Jam got in. There was a lot of excitement about that. Um, I just don't understand like what they're doing there. It, it's totally bizarre to me. The uh, the Rock Hall is very inscrutable. Um, interesting things that m- one might would think would call, fall in Fish's favor is that they they played when Genesis was inducted, um, which was awesome, by the way. And the hot dog hangs in the hall already. So, um, yeah, yeah and, and it seems like Rolling Stone likes fish right. and like Rolling Stone liking you is like a big f- plus. Although, you know, like Tom Morello is like on the nominating committee uh, for the Hall of Fame. And I think Rage Against the Machine was eligible last year and they didn't get in i was pretty surprised by that i thought that would be a slam dunk not necessarily because i i mean i i like rage i like rage against the machine i mean they're not like my favorite band of that era by a long shot um but i thought tom morello sort of being in jan winner's pocket or whatever i thought that would help them get in um or like tom morello like did you give soundgarden like with your ex-band make Chris Cornell like did you give him a nudge like I thought Soundgarden would get in um too especially after Chris Cornell died um it just seemed like that made sense you know because like Donna Summer sadly got in after she passed away um and there was like a lot of pressure on the Hall of Fame to to put her in after that I thought something similar would happen with Soundgarden um and that didn't happen so, you know, I mean, like next year, like, who, you know, you think, OK, Moody Blues and Dire Straits. So is it going to be like um, what Super Tramp and like Sticks next year? You know, I don't know. Hoda. They're just kind of they're just kind of going down the list of like every significant band of the 70s still. But it's they're kind of like Proco Harem, like it, uh, <laughs> Proco Harem's all right. They'll probably get in, you know, but put Tangerine Dream in there, by God. Yeah, and you know, or you know, Steppenwolf is Steppenwolf going to get in now? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I'm not knocking those bands. It just seems like we're going to put in every single band with a greatest hits album from the '60s and '70s before we even think about all these other people that I think are way more significant. I mean, come on, like the I mean, the Booty Blues, okay whatever they, they, you know you could make a case for them being important i guess but who gives a fuck about the moody blues not me Come on. <laughs> I, I like ride my seesaw dude. i like that's him, a great tune but yeah I, 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 i'm not knocking them but it's like it's not exciting to get them in like i just don't understand like the urgency to get them in like <laughs> if you're making like, if you think of the hall of fame as noah's ark and it's like we got to save the precious things. I'm not putting Moody Blues on my Noah's Ark for rock bands. <laughs> it seems very marginal to me, but I don't, you know, 
What do I know? I don't know shit. We've established that, RJ. I don't know how you guys feel about Radiohead. I just feel like if you are a rock fan, what, under the age of 40, 45, OK Computer, Kid A, and Rainbows. I mean, those are like significant albums. You know, and there's a lot of people that don't like Radiohead or whatever. I understand that. But like, even if you hate them, it's kind of hard to deny their significance in 90s and 2000s and 2010s rock music. Um, to me, they're at least as significant as Pearl Jam, but apparently not. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I think that whole thing was about them saying that they weren't going to show up, but that's all. That's a whole another story. Um, sure, but like Sex Pistols said that too, and they put the Sex Pistols in, and like they only have one record. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. Prove you're bigger than that, Hall of Fame. <laughs> Come on. For those listeners who are on the, the nominating committee and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to stump, about stump it. for it. Tom Morello listens. Yeah. Think about what we're saying. Okay, thanks for listening to our interview with Stephen Hyden. We'll be back in about two weeks for part two. See you then. Keep on rocking. Hi, I'm Bob Crawford from the Avid Brothers, and the podcast you're listening to is part of the Osiris Network, a global community connecting passionate music fans with podcasts about music, artists, and culture. For more information about all the shows in our network, please visit OsirisPod.com. Osiris. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I feel like this rock was... Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.